Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast, recorded for the second week of September 2020. Hope everybody's doing well. I, uh, I'm recording this, and the smoke has moved in really heavily. Um, like uh, during, I think, uh, like yesterday afternoon is when it really started to come in strong, and then today, this morning, it was uh, really red as the as the sun came up, and now the sky and the light is uh, really covered in smoke, kind of from the north to the south, and it doesn't seem like there's really any break in it at all. It seems like it's a little higher. It's not to, it's not settled on the road as much as it was for part of yesterday afternoon, but. Uh, yeah, a lot of smoke out there right now. It'll probably clear up, I hope, maybe, in a couple of days. Uh, but I, I guess as the way that the weather is working right now, we're getting a lot of uh, easterly wind that's pushing smoke from fires in the Cascades down into the Willamette Valley from Portland. I guess down to, well, I don't know, you know, down to Eugene at least, but but definitely down, I guess, like Grants Pass, like Southern Oregon has a lot of smoke. That might be drift from stuff in Northern California from those fires, but I'm not sure. I think it's a lot of these fires from from smoke from the Cascades. It's uh, clouding over the valley pretty strongly. But yeah, it looks eerie outside. It looks kind of apocalyptic in its uh, kind of orange-yellow color of it. A few years ago, I think, was it maybe 2017, we had a week... At the end of August, I think that we had a lot of smoke in the air for probably like a week or almost two weeks. I remember that kind of holding in for uh, for a little while, but that was probably one of the stronger weeks of like forest fire smoke that I'd seen in a while. Maybe it was back in, I think the summer of 2013 in Southern Oregon in Grants Pass, there was a fire. And that, I think, was burning pretty near that location, but the valley of Southern Oregon that was socked in with smoke for what seemed like almost a month. I was there for maybe about a week or a week and a half of it, probably the last last couple days of July into most of August, I guess, was um, pretty brutally interrupted by forest fire and smoke for that area. Um, I think like all the downriver trips, like the, the river and rafting stuff was smoked out through that whole Hell's Canyon area that uh, that I'd been in before. But yeah, that'd be a real bummer to you know, you know go vacation, go camp, and go on a, a rafting trip for four days and just be in, you know, pea soup thick smoke. It looks like fog, like thick fog on the ground, but it's not. It's just, just terrible thick smoke, ash coming through. Today there was ash kind of uh, falling on my car. Like when I went out this morning, I was looking at the windshield and it was like dusty. And I was like, oh, weird. How's that? And uh, I looked at it a little closer, and it was little bits of ash that had fallen down. So it seems like the, I don't know, some part of a tree or s- that was there yesterday. Well, how long ago do you think that was? You know, uh, from the last time it was, you know, just some green, evergreen tree up in the Mount Hood National Forest. Now it's on fire. Now it's up in the air. Now a bit of it is ash on my windshield 150 miles to the south. That's weird how it goes. Just a couple days ago. Shoot. It enjoyed August 1st or September 1st, and then now Labor Day, it's gone. Poof. Well, I hope everybody had a good Labor Day weekend. It's probably a blast. COVID 2020. It's been a weird year for, I guess, Labor Day. Hanging out. No barbecues. No pool parties. At least not like uh, we're used to, I guess. So it was a pretty pretty normal kind of relaxed day around here. But... uh 
It was good though too. So I wanted to talk a bit about um, some stuff that's kind of related to like the hunting season that's coming up, and I think uh, and really like the, the the archery season that's probably our, is it bow season right now that's in effect for was it like elk maybe deer I don't know is that September first that that starts I saw a couple stories about that like a sad story in uh, I think the Tillamook area a sixty year old man uh, was out bow hunting shot an arrow off got an elk. But the elk was alive. The next day they were scouting to try and find the elk. The elk was still alive. And then it charged the man and the property owner. And it gored the man who shot the the elk. It gored the man in the neck. And the man passed away from his injuries. Really weird story out of uh, Tillamook, Oregon. I guess like a, a guy in his 60s who was going out on an elk hunt. And... Man, not what I'd expect. Another story, maybe a more fun one, is uh, I think a 13-year-old on his first hunting trip went out on opening day. Before the end of the day, got like a prize-winning elk, a huge one. I guess like a real big one, but yeah, like just like a couple hours into the first day of it. You know, you, you get out there, probably wake up at 3 a.m., get out there at 4 a.m., get to your spot. By 8.30, he's got an elk and a picture and a news article by noon, you know. Sounds pretty fun. Good first uh, first day introduction to the experience of hunting. But I was going to talk about that a little bit. I thought it would be kind of cool to, to talk about at least some of the stuff that I know about uh, uh, some of the stuff sort of around hunting stuff. I don't. I guess I don't really get into a ton of hunting stuff. But uh, but I was trying to uh, think a little bit about uh, some notes that I had about finding and scouting out dispersed hunting campsites or dispersed campsites that are um, that are away from parks, away from state parks, and uh, and sort of those uh, those bigger areas that are just kind of wide out, open that you can camp in, uh, and I've been able to find like a number of them over the years. It's really cool getting to kind of find those locations that uh, you can kind of keep a memory of their spot and then go back to year over year. And these are spots that are cool because they don't offer any facilities or any services. So there's no no water there. You got to bring all your water in. There's no bathroom services. There's no pavement. Probably it's like a pretty dispersed remote location. Uh, that you can kind of drive up to, but it's also still connected to a road, so it's not as uh, deep into the backcountry as like uh, a real place that you would go. So for like a, a lot of hunting stuff, I think what I'd seen in the past, and what some of these seem to be set up for, is uh, like a hunting party of say four four cars, you know, four a, a couple groups of people coming together, uh, and then meeting meeting up for their hunting party, and then having a location where they can have like a big enough base camp where they can have all their equipment, their four cars, and then they can go out on their couple day expeditions or their morning hunt, come back to the camp, go out on their evening hunt, come back to the camp sort of stuff for what it seems like a lot of people in, uh, in their different locations that they go, uh, go out on hunting trips and stuff. But I was out in the John Day River area, driving the John Day River Canyon, uh, which is like an area, well, I guess you can probably find it. The, the John Day River empties out into the Columbia River. And and then I think kind of is one of the larger river systems, the larger uh, river drainages that exist out in eastern Oregon there. Uh, there's a few others that are kind of out there, but I think that's one of the bigger ones that cuts through uh, some of the sections of eastern Oregon. Otherwise, there's like the Deschutes that runs down the east side of the Cascades and drains a couple, a couple other rivers into it before it empties out into the Columbia River a little closer to like the Mount Hood area. But the the John Day River area is cool. It's out there in eastern Oregon. And uh, that's where I was camping a little bit earlier 
in July. And as I was driving through, I have that, that map app, that Onyx uh, mapping tool. And I was going through and I was marking locations as I would drive. I really didn't like stay there or stop there. I'd take pictures or something. But I'd go through and I'd mark these locations as I was driving around for these dispersed uh, campsite locations that I'd pass. And so that was kind of a good way for me to make a catalog uh, kind of passively as I was driving around, but make a catalog of the locations that I might be able to go back to. Uh, and some of the, the campsites that seemed a little bit more uh, suitable for a day or an overnight kind of trip or a couple days or something like that. And so that's what I was thinking about for for like dispersed hunting campsite locations of uh, some of the stuff that uh, people kind of use. But uh, but setting up the mapping tools uh, and using like the photo geotag service or the, that, that option that's in the, the Onyx off-road map app or the Onyx hunt app uh, works really well. I, I was... I was finding it worked really well to, to kind of grab the phone, take a picture when you arrived at a location that was like a good hunting camp. But uh, I found like probably like six or seven on the last uh, two or three trips that I've done just kind of scouting around as I was driving around the, in the, the woods and stuff, you know, places that I didn't end up camping that night. Um, but I thought would be a pretty reasonable spot to head back to sometime in the future. So yeah, the John Day River uh, area had like a lot of stuff, sort of that area, I guess, between uh, like the Painted Hills around Mitchell. And there's probably a lot of stuff that goes up that highway t toward the town of John Day. But I think I took like a back road that followed the John Day River from like the Mitchell area up toward Clarenow, which I think is like north of there, kind of jumps like to one of the f the highways that runs uh, north of there, but yeah, like Clarino and up. And so I kind of took that section and I was trying to mark like a few of those dispersed camping sites that I would find on the sides. And uh, a lot of these, like I was saying, like the, there's no services or anything, but they're set up on BLM land or, or national forest land. Uh, a lot of them, I think, are BLM land. I'm not totally sure about that, how that goes, but uh, uh, as this was, yeah, it was like a, uh, like a, just a, well, what am I trying to say about it? What's cool about these dispersed campsites is that, you know, you can set up as much stuff as you want. You can be there pretty much undisturbed the whole time. And, uh, it's cool. Like, I think a lot of these sites are great to camp at during the summer and stuff, but, uh, you can kind of see by the design, like how they were set up, that they were really laid out, uh, for hunters coming in, in September and October to do like the elk and deer, uh, like hunting trips, but you can kind of tell that I think by like some of the tools and stuff that are set up or like some of the ways they have their tables um, or you see those uh, uh, You see like a branch that's been like nailed in about 10 or 12 feet or 15 feet up in a tree And I think that's where you can like bring in a deer after it's after you get it while you're out hunting You can bring it back and then string it up and then start carving up the meat um, While it's like while it's hung up on that. But I think that's like one of the signs that I see a lot. But also there's like, I don't know, just whatever they use for their, their fire pit or whatever else they use. Really, you're going to see hunters probably like this week and for the next like month straight if you're out in any of those uh, those further eastern Oregon places of people uh, set up to do their hunting trip and stuff. But um, there's a couple on and offs between the hunting seasons and stuff for the next couple of weeks. But it's, I don't know, it's kind of interesting going out there. And uh, I, I remember this time of year, like out, out in eastern Oregon toward Hart Mountain, there were like a bunch of hunters that would be set up in different spots uh, for like a couple sections after Labor Day. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't totally reckon how many people would be going to certain places. 
uh, for hunting season stuff. But I was thinking like, wow, there's a lot of people camping for some time after Labor Day. And you think, oh, yeah, this is like this is actually like outdoorsmen that you know, like to go hunting, like to go do stuff into October or into November. And uh, I was thinking, oh, yeah, they're not doing like summer camping trips anymore. They're, you know, <laughs> they're actually doing uh, doing something else out here in the woods. Um, but it's uh yeah it's kind of fun going around checking out stuff and uh trying to do some scouting for that it's cool though you know one thing i've kind of recognized over the years is uh it's really tough to like just go out into an area that you don't really know very well and try and find a good campsite and uh, that's why i've i've kind of started um well that's really a definitely a, a big reason why i tried to to start making like a little catalog of locations of good campsites i find while i pass them um, but also I've been trying to notice that uh, some spots are going to be better than others for different times of the year. So I've been really trying to do a lot of like off-season scouting where uh, at different times of the year when maybe even I'm not on a camping trip, I'm able to uh, kind of scout out a couple different areas and mark some locations or at least like write down or remember that there's a, a location that I want to go back to. But that helps a lot when you're trying to go out to a campsite or to a, a camping area or when your circumstances change. Like a lot of time I'm camping by myself, but it's kind of cool to remember remember locations that are a little bigger or something or have a little bit a little bit more of a ease of access if you're going with like a group of people that's a little larger and you want to accommodate a couple different cars or a couple different people um i was kind of noticing like the difference between like um like group sites and like uh kind of like more remote sites that you might go to and that's sort of something that you're going to notice out there too of these kind of these bigger group sites where it seems like you could almost have like a horse camp or something. I've seen that as a, as an option out there too. It's kind of strange when you go out, you know, there's like kind of regular camps. It seems like you could set up and then there's like a camp with a, with a corral built into the campsite. And it seems like it's made from timber that was cut and processed. You know, they just like cut down a tree right there and then split it and then made a corral out of it to keep their horses for, their horse camp that they had for, you know, some hunting thing that they're up to or some outdoors thing they were up to. But it seems like a lot of these places are like big enough to like bring in an ATV or, you know, they have like a quad or something like that. But it seems like there's kind of like a big uh, circled out area. And then otherwise there's like different locations that are uh, kind of like more for like high clearance trucks or, you know, like some kind of four, uh, four wheel drive location that's a little bit further where you can kind of get back a little ways into the what would kind of be the back country or you know, into an un uh, closer to a wilderness area and then you can take that and then jump back further and uh do some hunting in an area that you'd uh, maybe scout it out earlier in the year but for me like I don't really hunt or do any of that stuff I'm just out kind of hunting for pictures um and hunting for good campsites and stuff so that's kind of what's been fun about that and going through the John Day River area up there there was a lot of stuff that uh, that bordered like some BLM land that stretched up a hill and I guess that area is like a, a uh one of the uh one of the drainages that I that, that people go to for a lot of elk hunting um and here it's known for that or you know known for some pretty big elk that they're able to to get out of that area which is kind of it's kind of cool it'd be fun be fun to see some elk out there i've only seen a couple elk and most of the time i just see the female elk i don't think i've really ever seen like a big bull elk out there in the woods that'd be kind of fun but i've had a good time yeah getting out to go to uh some of those dispersed camping sites and stuff there's yeah some out in deep east oregon by like heart mountain that i've always really liked um there's a lot in kind of that eastern oregon section when you get out there but what i've noticed though is a lot of the stuff in the national forest section of uh say like the cascades it seemed like pretty pretty well populated and uh, it's kind of harder to find 
good spots up there. You can you can find like you know little pullouts and dead end roads and stuff. But uh, but as it goes for like uh, just kind of big free uh, dispersed campsite sections, it's uh, a little bit harder to find. You, it's it's a little more organized out in those locations. That's what's cool about some of the BLM stuff and some of the high desert location stuff is it's just. It's just kind of wide open. You're just, you know, sort of driving around. You take some little dinky road off to the side, and then you're at a cool fire pit and a big juniper tree, and uh, it looks like people have been camping there forever, you know. So it's it's cool that you can kind of find some stuff like that, and I've, I've had a good time going out to Eastern Oregon to find some stuff like that for myself. Um, so I want to get out there and, and uh, try and go camping at some of this, uh, some of the spots. I know, like, I'm kind of competing with the hunting season, like I was saying, but, but even still, yeah, I want to jump out there and uh, try and do some fall camping that's really like one of the best times of year to go out there i really like the springtime like even the early springtime like late march and april while it's uh, still pretty cold if you can if you can gear up for it it's really a cool time to be out there because you have uh, so much uh, like texture weather in the sky and in the clouds uh, that it, it kind of keeps the terrain pretty interesting it can be pretty miserable you know if, if the weather's totally turned on yet but uh, as it goes for a lot of it it really is kind of like a cool time to be out there in the summertime It'll, even by like May or uh, a little into June for sure, it just gets so hot that it's kind of tough to be out just kind of wandering around or hiking around in the in the daytime. Uh, so it kind of cuts down on the amount of, of just kind of trekking around or wandering or poking around stuff that you could do. You could probably do some from your truck or something, but it's, it's a little more fun to get out there and uh, hike around, check some stuff out. So it seems like uh, the fall, like when the temperatures are down a little bit, you have a little bit better opportunity to do that. And then early in the springtime, um, but I think the fall is my favorite time to be out there when you're you're watching the the aspen trees kind of turn from green to yellow to orange and get a lot of color out there in uh, some of those uh, some of those aspen groves that grow out in eastern Oregon. So I want to try and go out there and get some photographs of it as the seasons start to change and the colors come on in the trees. Um, I get I bet there's going to be some nice days and stuff out there, and it seems like some of the trees are already starting to turn a little bit. Like I was saying. In that last podcast, I'm seeing a lot of uh, a lot of trees kind of start to get that late late summer, early fall tinge to them, where it looks like they're about to about to turn over and uh, get brown and begin fall, begin autumn and stuff. So it's uh, gonna come on pretty fast. It's already with the yeah, like the second week of September. That's kind of crazy. Um, so I wanted to talk about some of the studio stuff that I've been doing. I um, I got. Uh, a couple different pieces going. Um, I've been working on editing with a controller. I talked about this a while back on a podcast, that, but I thought I would talk about it a little bit more on this one um, after I've had some more experience with it. But I've been working with this X-Touch compact slider controller that kind of plugs into your computer. And it's kind of hard to explain over audio, but it looks like an old mixer board, you know, that you would have seen to like mix audio. And there's this program that uh, connects all of those controls with the controls that you have in Lightroom. Uh, it's called LR Control. There's a couple other ones. I think there's another called P Fixer. I might have mentioned this on another podcast in the past that you can check out. I think called Editing with a Lightroom Controller or something, MIDI Controller, something like that. You'll find it. It's a feedback. Uh, it's cool. I've been getting some more experience with it. I'm trying to kind of remember the controls and the, the processes of it to sort of figure out how to like go over it. Um, but it's a mixer board, so you got like uh, eight sliders across, and you got a bunch of buttons, and all those buttons kind of trigger a different function of what the sliders and the develop module of, of Lightroom do. So what you can do is if you have like a, 
you know, a new set of photos that come in, you can go through and then adjust those sliders, click over to the next photo, adjust those sliders to kind of change the develop module presets and stuff, and then you can make some changes. But I've been trying to get into that more um, so that I can kind of go through, what I'm trying to do is go through my Lightroom catalog, pick out all those best photos, which I've done pretty much, you know, so I have like a couple different versions of uh, like portfolios or like all the best kind of select photos that I want to use. And now I'm trying to lay out different uh, locations like where of where I want those to go out. So like maybe like this group of photos I might want to put into a photo book or maybe these group of photos I want to put into a new gallery on my website. Or maybe this group of photos I want to go out to be some marketing that I put out onto some social media stuff that just sort of circulates. So I'm trying to kind of uh, make a couple different uh, different kind of collections of stuff to do that. But it's cool. What I can do is uh, is go through all these old photos that I have. And in Lightroom, you have all those adjustments that you made to those photographs sort of saved with the image in Lightroom. So uh, when I click over to the next photo, it'll, it'll adjust on my controller all of those faders to the location of the faders that are on the screen. And that means that I can take that fader and then say, oh, it's my exposure. I'll grab the exposure fader and I can move it up a little bit to increase the exposure or I can pull it back down uh, to make it darker and, and pull the exposure back a little bit. But it's cool. I'm uh, trying to get, to get used to that. What's, uh, what's nice is outside of just like the simple like exposure or contrast features, uh, some of the stuff you can get to is the color control section. And so in Lightroom, that's always been a little bit of a black hole for me where I've never really used the color mixer features that much. Like you have your, uh, your hue, your saturation, and your luminance section, and you can adjust any, any level of any channel of color that you want to select there. And this is where you can get into a lot of uh, fine-tuning of the, the, the type of color and light that that photo uh, has in it. And you can do a lot of that in sort of a coarse way by adjusting your temperature and your tint uh, with uh, with your controls up top, and I think a lot of people kind of try and adjust out the uh, the thing in their photo by adjusting their tint. But you can also do that uh, in the color control section there, and you can do that in the HSL section by like selecting red as the channel, and then bringing up the saturation of it, or bringing down the saturation, or grabbing the hue of your red channel and pushing it one way or the other. And it's really interesting how you can do that just to that specific color channel. And so this uh, this mixer board has been really useful in kind of visualizing how you're going to make those changes and seeing how much change you make to uh, one section or the other. But it's been kind of cool to use that to make some more fine-tuned adjustments uh, to some of the the color tone of the images that I'm looking at. And uh, it's kind of kind of nice uh, to I guess have like a different way of seeing how you're making changes to your photos and how you're editing. One thing I noticed though is that uh, it sort of is an inclination to over-process, which I remember this about like uh, working with a mixer too, you know, when you have like uh, a bunch of buttons for your EQ, you just kind of want keep fiddling with it or keep twisting it or keep pushing it or push it up a little bit more, add a little more of this uh, to help make it better. And it looks better, it looks crisper, it looks like you achieved like whatever kind of single thing you wanted out of it. Like I want this to have more contrast, you add more contrast. And then, well, I, I did it. I got more contrast. But then you look at the image overall as you do a couple additional things to it. And you sort of notice early on the photography stuff, you notice like, oh, man, I've layered on like a lot of, a lot of things onto this photograph 
it was really maybe only okay to begin with. But now it, it's kind of got like this kind of crunchy look to it. Even if it's a great photograph, it's got like this over-processed sort of crunchy look to it. My photos still do. And uh, and that's one thing I was noticing about mixing with this controller too is you, you kind of like want to you want to push that slider up a little higher. You want to roll that dial over just a little bit more. And what I've been trying to do a little bit is uh, is sort of pick the outcome that I really want out of the photograph. And I just like I want more out of this picture than just the way that it is but i want it more you know as you just kind of push up all the faders and hope it's more hope it's got more texture more clarity but what does that mean or what's that doing um so i'm kind of trying to like kind of pick the goal of what i want out of the photograph like what what do i think is working in the picture and then like how do i want to bring out the color of that or the crispness of that or do I want it to be like high contrast because I want to kind of show something, which is often sort of what I, what I like, or do I want to try and soften the contrast so that I get to kind of see these two things and I get to keep the dynamic range a little bit wider. Uh, it's just kind of kind of different things and different aspects of how you want to process stuff. And even if you want like a, a crisp sort of saturated, uh, vibrant landscape mix you know it's uh it's the, the type of mix i really like a lot it's sort of that look that you get like out of like an ektar uh film uh where you have like a lot of uh christmas a lot of vibrance and like a lot of deep blacks in the photograph so that's what i, I like a lot in the pictures but also there's there's just different photos and sometimes it looks good to kind of go in a different direction too but i normally try and like really bring my blacks down a lot and add that kind of contrast back to the picture and then i try and uh push up a lot of color into some of the set you know whatever section of the photo has uh has some of the the colorful light that uh, was probably drawing me to the picture in the first place um but because i like those kind of christmas crisp pieces of the photo i normally like add too much sharpening or i bring in uh like you know too much detail control or i adjust that tone curve too much or like i was saying i do too many changes to those color uh adjustments and then you look at it and you can say oh this is like an overprocessed piece you just it looks like everything about it has been like pushed a little bit and i think uh when it's pushed a little bit too much it is it's just too noticeable and so it's uh it's cool when you can get it right and it's really hard to have an, a neutral eye where you can re like as a photographer it's hard to see that you're like over over mixing it i hear like sound designers have the same kind of problem too when they're mixing audio and they'll uh they'll sort of similarly just sort of like compress something or uh or try and you know put an amplifier or eq something and they sort of solve a problem, but they sort of make a problem, too. And after a while, when you listen to the mix overall, it just sounds like, wow, this sounds like just wildly, it just sounds totally unreal. It's sort of like how your brain captures it a little bit. It doesn't sound like a real sound. Or in this case, it doesn't look like a real photo. It just looks like every piece of the light has been pressed or pushed or adjusted or manipulated in some way. And similarly with audio, it sounds like the voice or the tone or the instrument has just been pushed or set or, or kind of mixed in a weird way where uh, you can hear that it's been changed in some way. And so I think part of the photography stuff and what's cool about the controller stuff a little bit too is um, you, you kind of set your intention of where you want to go with the picture and then you try and make those changes as subtly as you can to the image while still trying to trying to get that that movement made out of it sometimes you have to make kind of a critical change to a photo to sort of make it work but a lot of times you're working with an okay exposure raw files they don't have the type of contrast 
and they don't have the type of color saturation in the in the native raw file um, as you want in your final output and that's why um, leaving photos as is or shooting as is is a good idea but really almost every raw file needs to have that next layer of effort put into it that gets you to that place where you would have been with film after it had been developed and so that kind of development process is what you get to do with Lightroom and that's what's cool about Lightroom is you get to go through the same kind of choices as you would have done and even way more choices as you would have done in the in the, the dark room when you would have been working on developing your film pushing it or pulling it or dodging or burning it in different locations to try and get uh, that film to come out the way that you wanted to um, and there was different choices of film that you would make to get different effects and so with raw you just don't have any of those choices made yet so like like i was mentioning ektar earlier you would use for like a landscape situation where you had a lot of light or say like some nice shadows and bright colors in the trees or something you can kind of capture that and it would look kind of crisp and bright and it would have a lot of contrast and a lot of color saturation to it that was cool but then there was also like a portrait film that had like a lot uh, or a much softer look to it. it had you know more pastels and pinks and purples and uh the sort of lighter softer colors sort of skin tones would look a lot more natural with it with ektar it would look harsh and heavily contrasted and stuff so um so those kind of choices it just is it just is not decided for you when you're shooting a raw frame. And so when you bring that into Lightroom, you do need to kind of add, if it's zeroed out, if you really look at a raw image when it's zeroed out, there's just no contrast to it. And there's no, the dynamics of the image just really aren't set up in a way that are appealing at all. So it's, it seems like, oh, you know, it's fine, but they really do need to be adjusted a little bit. And so kind of like thinking about it in advance, having a goal in mind and then being able to sort of subtly adjust to that is what helps a, an image kind of come out a lot better. What sort of helps a person avoid uh, over-processing their frames like uh, I have been known to do all the time. <laughs> That's how it goes, I guess. That's kind of part of it. But uh, but yeah, so I'm going back through a lot of these photos and I'm using this controller to uh, sort of nudge those sliders down in di different spots, turn different things up, kind of change things and sort of make them a little bit more color accurate, a little bit more even toned in their edit. And then I want to try and make a big export of all of those and a bit of a higher resolution uh, compression than what I've done before. I put those up in a way where uh, people can see those online in a better way. And so I've been making a bunch of uh, changes to my website and I've been trying to rebuild that over this last year in 2019. I think for a period while well, I hadn't been recording a podcast in the uh, in the winter time, I had done a lot of work on the website, uh, BillyNewmanPhoto.com, trying to change the graphics around and some of the links and the structure of it. And so uh, happy with the changes, happy with the, the way that it works and stuff. But yesterday, I just added a new tab to the page where uh, it's, uh, it says 360. It's kind of below the main masthead and below the header piece there where there's a, a block of uh, of links of uh, kind of big photo links that go out to different locations but uh, that first one in the block says 360 and uh, that was uh goes to a youtube playlist that i have put together where there's a, a bunch of the, the 360 videos that i've put together uh from the the theta is it the z1 i think i was talking about the theta z1 360 camera uh, video that I put together and then uh, a bunch of stuff from the GoPro Fusion 360 camera that I put together a couple years ago but a bunch of landscape locations across Oregon with some still you know like a stationary video clips and some uh, some like walking uh, 
clips where it's sort of like more like a, a VR tour, you know, like a VR walkthrough of a of an outdoor location. But like places like Smith Rock, I've got Fort Rock, got some stuff up in the Cascades. I've got a spot by Crater Lake. I've got some cool stuff on the coast by some uh, some cool kind of mountain cliffs along the Pacific coast. That's a really cool one. And uh, I got a couple of, I got like a, uh, <laughs> I got riding a bicycle. That one's a fun one. Riding a motorcycle, riding a motorcycle on like a dirt road through a bunch of Oregon grape. That's a 360 that's up there. But a couple cool um, VR videos that I've been trying to put together over uh, the last couple of years. But I've got a playlist together. It's up on the YouTube. And so there's a yeah, new link, new change on the website that cuts over to that, which is uh, pretty fun. Happy about that. And then I'm trying to go through the website and I'm trying to add some uh, some new links to a bunch of old posts. Um, so I'm trying to go back through and kind of fill those out a little bit to have some links out to some uh, some different spots. Like if I talk about uh, like a camera I'm using or a piece of gear, I'm trying to have a link out, not to a place to buy it, like an Amazon page, which a lot, a lot of people have like a, have some kind of like Amazon affiliate or something like that. Uh, what I'm trying to do is send out like just to places that have like information about it. Sometimes it's just the Wikipedia page because that's, that's really like the most current thing that exists about some of it. Sometimes it's like the manufacturer page about it. Uh, or sometimes it's a third-party reviewer uh, that's sort of a more trusted site. But for like a lot of the camera stuff, it's like KenRockwell.com or, uh, or like DP Review when I'm talking about um, the, like the camera equipment I might have used on a trip. I say I mentioned the D3 or the D2H that I used or... Uh, or when I switched over to a Sony a7R. I'm trying to go back to some of those images, and if I'm mentioning that or if I'm talking about that equipment, uh, then what I want to do is, uh, is fill in a couple of those links so that, uh, that if you check that, that page out, you can link out and, and learn a little bit more about that camera equipment specifically for those details. Is, uh, I don't really know them all. I remember I read it when I bought the camera, I think, but outside of that, I, I don't really remember any of it. Also, I want to talk about uh, these cool PA speakers that I picked up. So, I got uh, I got a, a pair of pretty pretty big like uh, PA speakers. I think it's like a, a twelve inch and then a tweeter, and it's two of those. So I got a left and right, and I put them up in the studio right now. Really, it's like way too big to go in the studio. I could just use like little desk speakers to fill up the uh, the amount of space that this is. But it's cool to have a PA again. It's probably like big enough you could take to like an outdoor event or an indoor event or something. Uh, you know, you could have it, it would, it would run a wedding fine, something like that. But I didn't have an amplifier. I think I'd gotten rid of it when I moved out to Hawaii. Um, so I was looking around online and I picked up, uh, I picked up an amplifier that's like a rack mount amp. And it's kind of cool. It's, or it's running fine. I mean, you know, it's no big deal, but uh, uh, it's cool now. You can like connect Bluetooth to the amp, which isn't probably my only preferred way. I think there's some, some, some things that'll happen that mess with the sound but it's cool i can just like hook my laptop up bluetooth to the amp and then it's playing out of this big pa system so it can definitely rock the house that's for sure uh so it's a pretty small house in sort of a residential area even it, even it's a house but it's you know it's not an apartment anymore but as it is even still it's uh it's pretty loud sometimes so uh, i've been keeping it down but it's cool to have it and i want to try and use it along with uh like the uh i've got a couple amplifiers here for the guitar stuff that I've got up on the wall, but I want to incorporate the PA into it a little bit too, where I think uh, like I've done some stuff with the acoustic guitar uh, where you can kind of amplify that through the PA. And then I also want to try some stuff of, um, of miking an amplified speaker 
and then recording that as sound instead of direct input into the audio interface. That's pretty exciting. I'm sure you guys are excited to think about how I will route a sound recording that I may or may not do in the future. But that's uh, some of the stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, setting up, uh, setting up a mixer, setting up a PA, working with Bluetooth, and uh, I don't know. You know how am I gonna? How how do you use a PA in a studio? It seems like it'd be pretty easy to understand, but uh, for for audio st- or if, you know for the kind of the light stuff, you know, it's like I, I don't know. I got headphones on right now, so not too hard uh, but now i've got a giant pa it's bigger it's like as big as the one i like set up for dances in high school so it's like this is huge i don't know probably overkill for what i'm gonna need but it's kind of cool to have um so yeah thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the billy newman photo podcast i appreciate you guys uh, checking it out listening to me talk a little bit about smoke about how to find a dispersed campsite some spots up in the john day area some elk hunting stories Wow, pretty cool editing with an X-Touch. That's been really fun. Yeah, we covered it all. No way. Uh, but yeah, you can check out more stuff at billynewmanphoto.com. Uh, a lot of updates there that I've been trying to put together, trying to put some more stuff up on the blogs itself, uh, maybe some more helpful stuff. You know, It's a lot of just like kind of photo posts, but I want to try and put up some more information about how I'm putting those together or sort of what I'm up to with that. And I've got the time and stuff, so it's uh, kind of cool to, to put some of that stuff together and see some people use it. Um, so I've been happy about that. Happy to see the uh, podcast numbers. They're cool. So yeah, if you're checking out the podcast, thank you. Appreciate it. If you checked all the way out to this, goodness, thank you very much. But uh, yeah, shoot me an email sometime. You can find some contact information out at uh, billynewmanphoto.com forward slash about, I'm pretty sure. So uh, go there and find out all the information about me you want to. Uh, but until next time, I appreciate you guys tuning into this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Talk to you next time. Goodbye.